poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is, quite frankly, one of the current best overall poker players on the face of the planet, Dan Zak. Dan's pursuit of greatness in the world of poker reminds me of a Russian proverb. If you chase two rabbits, you will not catch either one. When I put on my research hat while prepping for today's show, one thing immediately became clear. Dan Zak, an elite and brilliant poker mind, has basically zero presence on the internet besides his Twitter account. This, to me, was a refreshing reminder of how vitally important it is to correctly prioritize your time and energy so that you give yourself the best possible chance to realize the vision you have for your life. And when it comes to competing against the very best poker players on the planet in the highest stakes games in the world, there's zero room for error. That isn't to say you can't live a healthy life in your pursuit. It just means you're not allowed to waste precious time and energy chasing multiple rabbits. So in today's episode with Dan Zak, you're going to learn about his poker origins, hear him tell incredible high stakes cash game stories, learn about our shared love of spreadsheeting, and much, much more. So now, without any further ado, it is my honor and pleasure to bring to you a titan of high-stakes poker, the great Dan Zak. Dan Zak, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you doing, man? Doing good, thanks. Uh, just rolled just... out of bed? Yeah, uh, it's 12.30, so it's a uh, waking hour for me. Ah, uh, the waking hour. How old are you, and, and where are you from? You're on the East Coast, because it's 12.30 for me, too. Uh, I am 29 now. Uh, I'm from New Jersey originally. I spent a decent amount of time in California uh, doing poker stuff and have been back here for the last three years or so. Nice. Um, the pull of family is always pretty strong. It is. It is just the pull back to where you're from, um, especially, you know, you're 29, like I'm 38. As we get older, you know, we have less and less time to spend with our family as they're getting older and older as well. So yeah, it's pretty important to be close. Um, let's go back though to your poker journey, you know, growing up New Jersey, you said, how did you yep. enter the world of cards? Like, what did that look like for you? Uh, sure. Uh, mine is early and unusual. Uh, I first got, I mean, I had a little bit of interest in poker. Uh, my family used to have these annual family reunions, and there was uh, always a raffle. And I, the first one that I can remember, I won the jar of pennies that was used for penny poker. Uh, and it was like super exciting to win the raffle. And then it was like, oh, wow, this card game is, is really fun. Um, and that's when I was, I don't know, eight. But I really got into it uh, when Chris Moneymaker won the main event. So I was a religious ESPN watcher, um, really into sports as a kid. 
and World Series of Poker comes on, Chris Moneymaker, like Sammy Farha, uh, Dan Harrington's characters were just like, I just loved it. Um, Mirvahidi, and I remember, too. Yeah. Uh, I think he, he was at that final table, right? He was. He I, ran a big bluff I on Moneymaker at one the point. One. Yeah. Uh, Amir Vahidi was there, and then Phil Ivey got ninth, I think, that year. Yeah, Phil Ivey had the ace queen to, to nine sand um, yeah. earlier in the coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I I watched that, and I was uh, I still remember I was at my friend's house, whose dad was my baseball team's coach, and I was like, we need to play poker. Like, I, w- I want to play poker. We we, you know, we got on sunglasses, uh, <laughs> me and my friend, and his dad kind of laughed at us because he would occasionally go play at Borgata. Uh, but he like entertained us and played. And then I started forcing my family to play poker games at home. And then what happened was the boom happened and my brother is eight years older than me. So I was 10 at the time. He was 18. He started playing on paradise poker at the time. And I would sweat him over his shoulder playing, you know, $15 sit and goes on paradise and really just was obsessed, like completely obsessed at 10. Um, had my dad buy me uh, Harrington on Hold'em books at the time. And I would watch Ian and take notes behind him. Ian's my brother. Uh, I started secretly making uh, play money accounts without my parents' knowledge on, at the time, Paradise and Party Poker. And then within a few years, Full Tilt and Poker Stars as well. Uh, and at some point started, you know, playing free rolls, uh, running up balances, running down balances, because not good, and also literally zero discipline. So, like, you know, full bankroll on table immediately after losing one buy-in of whatever disciplined uh, stakes I had decided to play. Um, and and that, that was basically, like, 10 to, to 14 for me. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was how I started. It's interesting... Um, you'd think that it would be ultra rare, and I guess it is rare to start playing cards at like such a young age. Uh, Patrick Howard, I believe, also started playing when he was like 11. Um, Jack Lasky and his buddies started playing when they were like 12-ish or 13. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess this the generation that's kind of like right before me, I guess, you're like, 10-year gap um, when poker boomed you were probably just watching mtv like the rest of us saw the card game and just kind of fell into it what was it about poker specifically that resonated with you that just caught you uh i just love competitive games um when i'm not playing poker even still i'm finding games that have ranked ladders and and just trying to get to the top of them uh so poker was convenient in that this was a path to actually supporting oneself doing that whereas all of the other ones you know it's a pipe dream it's like unless you are literally the world's best at each one of them you you can't make a living and so you're going to have to get a job i don't want to get a job i just want to play games um and so here is the one game that it seems uh realistic you know a 10 it's funny because at 10, it's like, it sounds like a joke. You're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah, you can, you can play games for a living if you want. Like, you know, he'll grow out of it. But I, I so adamantly was like, I, I really just want to play competitive games. Um, and this is the one that where the currency is actually money. Like, I played chess growing up. I would eventually get into competitive Halo. Uh, I've played 
competitive Hearthstone. I've played competitive TFT. Uh, I'm trying to think of more when I was a kid. Chess was the main one when I was a kid, and it was just like it's not viable. Uh, you know, I would get coaching from GMs that my parents would pay for some coaching lessons, and they would complain about how unviable chess was in mid lesson and how tough life was for them. And I was just like, oh shit, like this is this is not like a path to a long term plan. Like you're gonna have to get a real job. You can't just do this. So it was the first time, you know, the moneymaker effect was just like anyone can do it was the was the idea as well at the time. It's like, it isn't even that hard. Um, yeah, it's really tough unless you're like the one, you know, it's probably not not easy sledding being the 50th best Rocket League player in the world. You know what I mean? Um, it's just like competitive gaming space it's just really hard to reach the pinnacle the guys at the top do very well for themselves but man it's tough getting there and then like the downward fall at like age 21 <laughs> you're like over the hill in competitive gaming um it's just that's really rough uh did chess prepare you for poker in any way like did you take any strategic lessons from chess that you applied to poker um maybe some underlying stuff i i think poker getting prepared for poker is interesting because i don't think there's any way to do it i've i've tried to when i when i first uh you know graduated college and and realized or not i never graduated college sorry when i dropped out of college <laughs> and started playing poker professionally it's like oh my gosh like you know this is so easy uh, i tried to get some friends in who uh were smarter than me and uh i was like look guys like you you're making a mistake doing whatever else you're doing like you're gonna make more per hour in this than you're gonna make year 10 in the at a bank and i found that there's nothing that can prepare you for poker and you don't know if you can make it in a poker until you actually hit a, a sustained downswing uh, especially in live poker like it just melts uh, people's brains in a way that there's there's no way to prepare for that. Um, going to work every day and just getting your head beaten in uh, for months on end and not wavering from your strategy, not wavering from how you approach the game is not something that uh, most people seem able to do no matter how smart or good at other games they are. It's just... It just fries too many people. Yeah, it the... It's because the, of the distortion and the feedback of what you're doing when you play poker. You, you just, the feedback is not perfect, right? Like the result of the hand doesn't really reflect how you played the hand. And when that, you're getting that feedback over and over and over and over and over again, like it's tough to remain calm and you, you kind of need this, um, just a high level of confidence that like what you're doing will make money eventually while also having the humility to go back and like try to review at the same time to upgrade your skills, but like not lose faith in the process while you're going through all the things you inevitably go through as a poker player. It's uh, I think poker is quite unique in that way. Um, and yeah, I mean, but that's the reason why we love the game and that's the reason why it's a viable path too, is like just because of the, the variance, the distortion makes poker a fun game to play where, yeah, you, you you can have a winning session, like, and doesn't really say much of anything at all about your actual skill level. Yeah, and I, I think everyone that plays poker understands that at a theoretical level. Um, but there's such a wide disparity, even amongst people who label themselves poker professionals, that actually adhering to that and like 
mental game strength and really the ability to uh, execute at their A game on a consistent basis, no matter what's going on on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis, on a month-to-month basis, like there's such a wide spectrum of uh, players' abilities to execute on that, no matter how much they all agree in theory on, on what you just said. Yeah, and it's something that you don't really have much awareness of, like other people's perspective until you talk to them. Um, like in my case, I would berate myself forever, right? Like I would show up, play, go on a downswing, whatever, and just battle through and keep playing volume and battle through. And uh, like, I guess here's an example of how like hard-headed I can be. Um, I got super used on one of the Asian apps for like a month, right? And like, I didn't figure it out for a month because I was like, Yo, I'm playing against 70 slash threes. Like, there's like five of them at every table. How, like, I will eventually win. Like, this, this will just eventually end. Um, and then when finally I dove into the data, I was like, oh shit, like now, now this is starting to make more sense to me. Um, but it took me a month to even go back and check. And like, you know, I've had acquaintances in poker, I've had students in poker that will just, yeah, go off on like a tirade about whatever, like, nothing's going well. I'm getting it in. I'm losing. Like, it's just, everything's terrible. And I'm like, how long has it been going on? They're like, yeah, three weeks. And I'm like, well, how are you doing? They're like, I'm break even. And I'm just like, like, it just mystifies me. I'm like, what do you mean? Like break even is causing you to just melt down. Like, I don't understand, you know? So yeah, like it, until you're in the pressure cooker and dealing with the ups and downs, the emotional highs and lows of poker on a daily basis, it's really hard to know if you're able to take it or if you're not able to take it. And I do think it, it takes practice. <laughs> it takes like just getting destroyed a lot um, to build up that resilience. But I think some of it is kind of innate in us as human beings. Yeah. I, I mean, practice definitely makes one better, but I'm not sure that everyone even can get to a level where it's a sustainable income level. Like, it only takes, you know, <laughs> you just can't go off the deep end once every year. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, you can't go on a bender for, for five days and blow through six months of EV um, and have that be a sustainable uh, work environment. And just so many guys uh, it, over the years have surprised me where I, I just see them uh, seems so solid and i guess the one of the best examples i can give is just you'll talk poker with someone and you'll for a while and you'll just be like oh yeah like this guy like totally gets it totally understands and you just go play a session with them or two and you just uh, you see what one bad beat does to them or um and, and there's so many of those there's just so many of the i can have unbelievable theoretical conversations with you you totally get poker and then go play and just be like oh man like you just can't you can't actually play though. Like you can, you can talk about it on a piece of paper, but you, you can't actually execute at the table. Yeah. And, and that's shockingly common. Yeah. What do you make of that? Like, where do you, why do you think that happens? It's just a emotional game for people. Like if you can't kill the emotions, it's not a game that you're going to have a lot of success playing uh, against, especially against tough players. Um, I mean, these days, the, the solution is just ban everyone who's who's better than you. And, and that also solves the problem. But uh, it's it's not going to work. 
uh, for you if, if that's how you react and, and you're playing open games these days. Like People are good enough that why does it happen? It, it happens because people just can't handle it. Like people can't handle uh, not getting the outcome that they view as uh, supposed to happen for them. I played this hand well. I should win. I got it in well. I should have won. I didn't. Rage. Uh, rage and destruction yeah. is how I just picture people's heads. Sometimes. Um, and they just. I was going to say sometimes like behavior that's obviously detrimental. Um, one tell tell sign can be normalized within like a group of four or five players. You know, it's like just I'm going to go to the pit or like they're all betting sports like collectively together or something like that. And you're like, wow, like these are guys that like I play against all the time and yet they have, they, they do this thing. Um, and I think a lot of times you can just like say, well, they, if they do it, like it's okay. Right. Like <laughs> they wouldn't be doing something that's like harmful. Um, and it just becomes normalized and like all of those decisions, like you, like you can't have those leaks as a professional poker player. Like they just, they will always crush you. Um, unless you're like a professional sports better or something, you have some quantifiable edge. Um, but like, yeah, poker is just too hard and you can't overcome even one leak. And I think that's another thing that just wrecks folks. Yeah. I, it's funny. So I grew up, I started playing poker at 10. I idolized, uh, a lot of the guys on TV growing up. I was like, I want to be a professional poker player. These guys that ESPN holds up as the golden standard of professional poker players are like what I want to be. Um, I eventually get old enough and, and turn 21 and, and start playing poker professionally, meet a lot of these guys, um, make a lot of the same assumptions that you're talking about. Like, oh, things must be okay if these guys do them. They're my heroes, like, you know, whatever, these, these pitting or sports betting. It, like, it was a weird realization to realize how broken and uh, just dysfunctional um, a lot of the people that I had grown up thinking were the models of like how to do this actually are. And you, you get up here and you realize a lot of these guys have huge debts or broke or um, don't actually win in the games they play and have like a business somewhere in a different country that's actually supporting their play. And they were just held up as a winning poker player. Like there's just so many different things that I got disillusioned with when I, when I first started playing full time, especially at higher stakes and meeting a lot of these guys and just slowly understanding what was actually happening instead of what they show you uh, on TV or on these shows. Yeah. How did that make uh, you feel learning that? Um, I don't know. Uh, a little sad. Uh, just it's never fun to see people who are so out of control of their lives at times. But I mean, some of them really are in control. Like there are models out there of, of really good behavior. And I just tried to quickly adapt on my feet and learn who to try to imitate uh, and try to emulate behavior from and, and who is uh, a train wreck, basically. What, what data points were you looking for? Oh, I mean, that was the hard part because money isn't always telling of exactly what's going on. Like results in games long term is somewhat telling, um, but you can't see those. And people have money from other sources, loans, businesses, um, cheating. 
so there's, I don't know, it, it's sort of a trial and error format of, of talking to people, watching them play, um, talking to others, um, kind of observing long-term habits, and, and you, get, you get slowly better at identifying what's going on with, with each person. Uh, you know, who is this person? Where does their money come from? You know, what are they as a is poker actually where where they're having success and if it is why? Um, and then getting better at identifying those reasons. Yeah, what are some like non obvious red flags that you've you've seen? Um, it's I mean, borrowing money is just always the one. Like, uh, just so many people that. Uh, when I was 21, I was like, oh, there's like no way this person um, isn't good for money, just like stiffing debts to various people. Like I, for the most part, set a pretty early rule after getting scammed for very small amounts at Turning Stone when I was 18, which is a 18 plus casino in upstate New York. I, I set pretty quick rules where I was like, oh, I really just need to be careful with this. But uh, I was still just constantly shocked by people um, who would take loans at the table who would just not be good for them at some point. And I mean, there's so I mean, this is this is the dirty secret of poker that's talked about on Twitter a bunch. But there's there's just so many guys that uh, should probably be outed that aren't for various reasons that just have you know big figures out that it doesn't really seem like they're going to get paid. Um, and the poker community is is so hesitant to ever out people because you know, people still come up with money despite owing debts and then they play with the new money and people just want to keep playing with them and outing them removes your chance to, to earn the money that they're, they're coming up with. And so it's this vicious cycle where there's just only downside to, to outing people for yourself. And the community just has a lot of parasitic relationships like this, uh, especially at the higher stakes. Yeah, and just because somebody like, even has money that you can quantify doesn't even mean that they're going to pay you back. Like, <laughs> you know, that you, you can get stiff from a billionaire. Um, I actually know that personally, um, just because, you know, for whatever reason, there's like, don't, don't want to pay. I mean, it, it's a very, it's, it's odd, an odd aspect of humanity. Yes. Uh, not altogether uncommon uh when people are just like done coming in uh you often uh you have games develop where someone will take loans to play each week and then we'll come back and pay back their loans in the previous week and bring new money to play with for the, this week um and, and very often just stiff at the end basically it seems like the mentality is you know uh i lost enough and like you guys took it and so you know i'm gonna stiff on my way out i think is, is the common uh, internal justification in, in those situations. Yeah, there's some narrative that's driving the behavior for one reason or another. Um, going back to being 14, you know, you said you mentioned that you were trying to get your friends involved in poker. Did your parents have awareness of your your poker habit <laughs> that you were uh, that that you had? They were definitely. I mean, I I hit it as hard as I could. At, at times, it came out, and we would have fights, and then I would go back to hiding. And I mean, it is a degenerate uh, childhood story of of me and poker. It's it was not a healthy relationship. I spent a time like, and for what it's worth, I wasn't really winning at any point up until uh, leaving high school. It was just kind of a mess. Um, you know, it's it's really lucky uh, for me 
that this thing I, I invested so much time into and I just had no emotional control as a kid um, and was just so dead set on making this my career that when I turned 21, I just forced myself to learn uh, a lot of the things that I had refused to learn uh, 16, 17, 15 in terms of con emotional control and discipline, you know, not doing the cute play because it's fun or see what happens or like just blasting off like, you know, holy shit, this is a job. Like, let me find the people again. Like, let me identify the people who are actually good at this uh, and try to emulate them and talk to them as much as possible and, and learn what differentiates the people who are constantly turning pro and then going broke within a year and the people who are still here year after year. Um, yeah. But yeah, at 14, 15, 16, I mean, it was just a constant story of uh, spin ups and spin downs, uh, you know, free roll winnings, um, depositing small amounts through whatever those were, pay safe cards or wiring money from, uh, God, like Western Union to Costa Rica or something like uh, just all the sketchiest ways to, to get amounts of money on. And I, I mean, I have some really degenerate stories. Like I think when I was 17, I was like a senior in high school and I went on like a church retreat trip to North Carolina. Uh, and I remember just like skipping all of the activities because I had brought my balance up from $150 to like 20K. And then I was just playing, you know, 200, 400 limit hold'em heads up against whoever was the guy who sat the, the lobbies and just ran it down and was just sitting there depressed afterwards with like my church group. And I just can't tell anyone that I just, you know, lost $20,000, which no one would be able to fathom. Uh, in the last 30 minutes after having won all of it the previous week, all while here at the, the retreat, like, I don't know, just a total shit show of, um, of stories, uh, from my teenage years. And it was, it just all encompassing. Like it was really the, the thing I spent the most time on and to, to really know positive effect. Um, after you graduated high school, you know, you mentioned that, you started taking it seriously when you were 21. So what was, what was that, those three years like, uh, you said you didn't graduate college. So I assume you went to college. Yes. Um, I graduated high school in 2011. So black Friday <clears throat> happened, uh, my senior year of high school. And it was probably really good for me because again, it was just this addicting toxic relationship. Uh, I went to Pepperdine in California. I made a lot of really good friends. Um, I played very little poker for the next two years. I would occasionally deposit small amounts of money onto, uh, I think it was like America's card room at this time was the main one and and maybe cake. And this again was like more like, oh man, like I knew exactly where the Western Union near my college was. And again, <laughs> just like sending $300 at a time to some random name in, in Costa Rica and to just lose the money playing 50 cent a dollar. And then the summer after my sophomore year of college, I went with friends up to Turning Stone, um, which is an 18 plus casino in upstate New York. And that was the first time where I had played live. It was the first time I played live poker in a serious setting. And it was the first time that I was like, oh, you know, I can actually see people and like, man, I shouldn't be losing to any of these people. Like, uh, I, I, I can beat these guys at this game. Like, you know, online, it was so easy to just kind of uh, emotionally send it all the time. But live, it became competitive for me in a way that it hadn't been online, where it's like, I want to beat these people and I can. Like, I believe in myself. Um, 
<clears throat> and so I went back to like reading some of these old books uh, and actually applying them in a disciplined manner instead of applying them until I didn't feel like it. And then just like shoving all in a bunch of times in a row um, uh, until I was out of money uh, and started having success. Uh, so that summer I went up for a weekend and ended up staying for two months. Uh, and I, I think I brought a thousand dollars with me and, and I brought home over a hundred thousand dollars from playing, uh, two, five, five, ten. There was one, one specific night where I played 10 and a quarter heads up against a guy who was not playing very well. And, and that was, you know, 30 of the hundred was in that one night playing heads up, but the rest of it was like every day at two, five, I would just get there and play for 14 hours straight. And I, the, the max buy-in at Turning Stone is 500 and I must've had a 5k stack, uh, a dozen times, um, in that game. And I was just very confident with how I could play. Uh, the games were incredibly soft up there. I, I remember these days I'm, I'm less about reads, but, but, but back then, you know, I had some, uh, was putting all my energy into focusing on how other people thought about the game. There was an older man who would drive from Syracuse every week. He came every Friday. And he would sit down and he would, the first hand he would play, he would always just bluff all in. And then he would play super tight the rest of the night. And it was like super clear that like his strategy was, I have a very tight image because I come here every week and I play super tight almost all the time. No one ever thinks you're bluffing the first time you go like go crazy. And so like the first time he would play a hand, he would just like triple barrel all in. And then he would just like uh, routinely shut down for the rest of the night and play rock solid the rest of the time. And it took me like, I don't know, two Fridays to realize this. And then every time he came, I would just three bet him very small. The first hand he would play, I would check back um, the flop and he would just bomb into me twice. And if I had anything, uh, I would just call down. And if I didn't, I would shove the turn. And I, I just, you know, it was like a free $300 every Friday. Um, yeah. It's just like little things like this that I got good at that. I look back on and I'm really happy about because it, it's not really, you know, these days poker is a little bit different, especially at the higher levels where it's a lot more, um, especially no limit hold'em is just so solver based. Um, and this is before all that. And it was just fun, like really streeting, uh, street pokering like people. And I just had so many little, that's the easiest one to explain, but just so many little dynamics with people back then playing every single day for two months with the same guys, uh, that I think I was, I got quite good at. Yeah. It's like, oh, this guy, he just, he, he's going to torch his first stack. Like, so either you put the last bet in on the turn or you let them put the last bet in on the river when you have any pair and you just, you crush him. Um, did he shut down after that? I, I don't even know why I'm curious about, about that, but did he shut down oh, after he got stacked or did he was, go off? Oh, oh, after he got stacked. No. Yeah. He would shut down. Like he You'd had a shut very down. set way of thinking. He had like, he had his way of thinking about poker and he was like convinced his way was right. Uh, it was like, I'm going to show up and I run a big bluff the first hand. And he just like never adjusted to like, maybe Dan has like figured it out given that Dan <laughs> just like always does something crazy against me on the first hand and then yeah. respects every bet I put it in for the rest of the night. But um, I don't know. It was just like two months of that. Um, that's funny. And so that's yeah, two no, months. He didn't really tilt. Yeah. And after that, I was like, oh shit, I want to do poker again. Um, and so I went back to my junior year of college and I got through one semester. I turned 21 in December and, and I dropped out the day before my birthday. Um, and I, I now had this big bankroll from turning stone 
Um, and I was like, I want to take my shot. And my parents were not happy, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was just this, I had had so much success that summer. And I was just like, I, I really just want to see if I can make this happen. How come parents weren't happy? I assume all the degeneracy through your <laughs> formative years. Yeah, I don't come from a, a family of, of gambling. Uh, mom, my mom like has always preached when we were growing up that gambling was basically evil. She's very religious and had been very upset when when it whenever it came out that I was I was playing online poker. And I don't know, my family's just like in, all educated, like all went to college, all have like normal, streamlined, uh, educated jobs. Um, poker was not a considered option yeah at all have they warmed up to the idea i guess over time as you've had sustained success playing yeah cards? everyone is fine with it these days it, it took a couple years of uh making it work before it was not please go back to college at every family occasion um but i think the main concern which was probably pretty valid for them at the time was I had just blown a lot of money and time on poker in high school and they were all aware of this and there was no reason to think it was going to be different. It was probably a bad idea to drop out in the first place. Like I had a two month heater at a random casino in upstate New York and decided to like drop out of college because of that. Um, after having five years of just getting buried online. Um, but luckily, uh, I was basically able to force a shift in how I approach the game from kind of it being this degenerate, just like fuck you thing that I did to myself on the side to I'm going to really try to make this work in a, uh, with a concerted effort. Yeah. Um, you know, you run up one K to hundred K, uh, seems like you have a natural lack of risk aversion playing 200, 400 heads up uh, with <laughs> 20K during your 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 church retreat. Um, when you started taking poker more seriously and you had you know a six-figure role, um, did you have any protocols in place? Um, and yeah, what did your, I guess, what did poker look like for you from that point in time of you taking it more seriously? So at 21, I was a little bit more aggressive still and the reason was I could still go back to college if I busted. Um, and so I, I wasn't that excited to just grind smaller and have to find out that way where I was, I was more like, let me really shoot shots. And if it doesn't work out, I can go right back like on this one semester. And if it does, then I'll implement some more serious stuff once I have more money to protect because 100k is a lot of money but you know in the in the long run like if i if i had lost that in an exchange like go back to college get a real job like it'll recover itself at some point and so um i played pretty aggressively when i first showed up like i remember my first session well okay uh, i guess i should tell some I, I can tell some more crazy stories um i when i dropped out i flew to the world series of poker europe um, World Series Poker Europe was like uh, a few days after my 21st birthday. It was in, oh man, it was in some random town in, in France, or I guess it was in Paris, but it was in something that's like not called Paris. But anyway, it was, it was, it was near Paris. Uh, I flew out there. I met a guy named Elliot Smith, 
who is uh, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a he was a high stakes poker stars reg for a long time under the name of Fort Redmon. Um, he's just part of the Canadian poker crew, but not one that's less well known. Um, I played some side events with him there. Uh, and he was very impressed with my play and we kind of exchanged numbers and said, we'd talk poker. It was a relatively unsuccessful trip, but I, you know, I played pretty small. Um, and then Elliot ended up buying me into the, to the main. Um, so I got to play the main, but I, I didn't do anything in it. Um, I fly home. Uh, the next poker stop is, uh, PCA. And so I, I ended up flying to, to PCA and I was like, all right, this is exciting. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm just. Uh, living the dream in, in a way, maybe at this point, uh, when I say I decided to take it seriously, that clicked a little bit later. Uh, maybe I was a little bit out of my mind the first couple months still. Um, and I get to PCA, Elliot is there and Elliot comes up to me and he's like, yo, there's this incredible PLO game. Um, and I was like, I, I don't really know how to play. And he was like, don't worry about it. Like take one shot at it. Uh, it's, uh, I'll take whatever percentage of you you want. And it was a, it was a 2550 game was how it was listed on the screen. And so I was like, all right, like uh, I'll, I'll take, you know, I think I took 2,500 of myself and Elliot said it's one ten K bullet. He gives me 7,500 and I, I go over to this table. It's actually 2550 with a mandatory hundred straddle on the button. Um, but then the whole table is these guys from Detroit. Um, it's like five pros from Detroit, and then they've brought their own losing player with them. And then there's a couple guys who are just gambling from for that, that are there for the tournament that are uh, like two pros and um, like two recreational players. Uh, every hand is it's twenty five fifty with a hundred mandatory in the button, but someone is straddling to a thousand from somewhere every single hand. <laughs> Like every single hand is 2550, 100 on the button, and 1000. But the 1000 is not mandatory. So you're sitting in this game and you have to pay 175 in orbit to play basically all in push fold poker. And so it's like, oh, I can play this. Like, I mean, this is super, super, again, super DJ. Like, I'm probably just going to lose my money, but like, I can play this. Um, so I just wait for aces and I get an aces and I double up. You know, I just say pot and it's, you know, it's. 5,000 or 10,000 at this point because yeah. so someone's raised and mm -hmm. just all in. It's like, oh shit, okay, 60, 40, here we go. I, I double. Uh, the next hand you know, uh, that I play, I have aces again, surprisingly. Um, someone pots and I just repot all in and it's a 40K pot and I double up. Uh, and then I get aces again, you know, two hours later and I'm down to 30K and, you know, I say pot and boom, I, I have 60K now. <laughs> Um, and you know, most, most normal people would leave at this point, but I, I just kept playing and PCA. I don't know if you've been there. The, the casino actually closes at 2 AM. Uh, it's either two or 3 AM, but they, they closed that, that, that section, uh, that they had for poker. It's not the casino. It's actually like a convention center, but they, they, so they shut it down at 2 AM. So there's like a last hand of the night. And I, I still remember this hand, uh, they announced last hand and this guy from Detroit says, all right, like, fuck it. Like he, he straddles six K and uh, you know, I have a, I have a 60 K stack at the time. Uh, I look down at, um, queen, queen, like Jack 10 double suited or something like this. Queen, queen, Jack nine double suited. Elliot has come over to the rail to watch, to like, uh, get updates and, and to, to <laughs> come down for the night for his piece. 
I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. All right. Pot. Like I'm on like the second to last player to act like I, you know, I've only really been playing aces, but it's super clear with 10 blinds to me that like, this is, this has to be played. Yeah. Um, and it folds to the guy and he calls dark. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think my pot's to 18,000. He calls. So there's 36,000 in the middle and we have like, I don't know, 45 K left. Thought comes, uh, like East 10, three. He checks and I check, uh, cause I'm scared. I don't know what the right thing to do here is. <laughs> and the turn, the turn is like, a, I think it's another, another, uh, no, it's, it's an eight. That's what it is. So I, I turn a wrap, uh, and he looks at, uh, two cards and then says pot. <laughs> And I'm sitting here like, oh my god, I'm gonna fucking lose all this at the at the last minute. And I put it in, and the the river comes a brick, so I just have queens. And I'm just sitting there like, all right, fuck. And, and he turns over the two cards he looked at, and he's got uh, nine seven. So he had like the bottom end of the straight draw, yeah. and he still has no pair. It's it's ace ten three, you know, eight eight two. And, and he so I'm like sweating with him because the fucking ace beats him. Um, <laughs> And he peels both of his cards super slowly. And finally he looks defeated and he's like, you got it. You got it. And I, I turn over Queens and, and I, I win this 120 K pot, uh, you know, I, which is more money than I had to my name to start the hand. Um, obviously it's not all mine. A lot of it is, is Elliot's at the time, but it was just like, oh, holy shit. Like, uh, man, I can just do this. Um, like I, you know, I didn't gamble this big for a, a, a while after this, but it was just <laughs> such a, such a, insane uh experience to have um what the hell was elliot doing very that, early on that he couldn't play in the game like what was he doing that was such high priority that he <laughs> he sent you in that i i don't know i think he really believed in me at the time like uh i'd, I'd have to ask him we we actually lived with him after this for a while in vancouver um we both played stars but um I, I haven't talked to him in a, in maybe two years that much. We kind of lost touch after COVID. Um, I don't know. I, I think he just really like believed that I was the next uh, good player that he had found, and he was just you know testing it out. That's that's all I got. I mean, he didn't play PLO either, so he had played even less than I had because um, I had degen off sessions of every game while as a child. <laughs> I, you know, I was playing 50 hundred horse with 10 bets to my name and looking up the rules on <laughs> a separate tab next, next to the, next to the table. So. Yeah. R risk aversion, not really too big a part of your genetic makeup, uh, <laughs> as a, as a youngster. Um, no. And it's funny cause it's such a concrete thing now for me. Uh, although I, I play really big now because I just have a, a bankroll that's large enough to uh, absorb hits, but like I would never be willing to swing the percentages of my bankroll that I used to, um, and it would make me sick now. But at this time, it, again, it, it just kind of was like it was play money in a way still in that I was viewing it as two options of, of run this up now or go back to school, and it's a ticking clock for me. And so I was willing to to do some dumb shit. And I also had it in me to do some dumb shit when it wasn't super large amounts of money as I'd proven in my teenage years. Yeah. So, you know, after the, the PLO PCA experience, 
what what happened next like as you're you know still finding more success after the turning stone running it up to 100k you're doing this full time um what was the next move as you realize like yeah i'm probably just not going to go back to college uh so i moved in with elliot after this elliot was like yo you should like come play online with me and i was like okay so i packed up shop from california and i moved to vancouver um to his apartment and played on stars um and at the time elliot was playing he was a reg in the 2515 no limit games which is um, very impressive <laughs> I, was, I was not that good in no limit he was he was one of the world's best i think at the time um this is like the days of uh i think like true teller was like the best player at, at this at this era i remember sweating a lot of of elliot true teller battles at, at six max 50 nl um so i got into mixed games at this time because there was a um i before i moved in with elliot i'd gone back to la for like a month and played at commerce and i started playing mixed games live at commerce i remember my first session was um i'd been playing the 1020 no limit game and kept spying the the mixed game i was like man like everyone at the 1020 no limit game is young and motivated and everyone at the mixed game is 50 and looks like they aren't trying um and so i remember one night i went and played the first night i played live uh mix was with barry greenstein and a woman named lee uh that is a commerce rec and they were just playing heads up at like 4 a.m and i you know uh, i'm sure i was like tilted and bored or something because it's 4 a.m uh and i was like all right uh, this, is, this is time to go learn but yeah, really intelligent then but anyway uh you know i, I go over there playing uh BT, barry, barry green sign and triple draw and, yeah barry, barry green sign in a commerce reg like, yeah, it's, it's like, a good can, spot 4 a.m why not it's a great spot it's a great spot uh so I'm like reading the rules to the Dubian triple draw on my phone as we're playing this game. I still remember uh, like putting in some raises and uh, I had a pair of Doogie. I don't know if you know the rules to the Doogie, but the, the rule are you try to make a four card hand that has no pair in four different suits. So, uh, and the lower, the better. Uh, and my hand had a pair and I like thought it was a good hand. And it's just, I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. Um, and very, very professionally, uh, like calmly, is like that hand doesn't play, but like you, you, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> you play the hand great, like just no, no sign of like holy shit. This guy has no idea what he's doing. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, fortunately for me, the bar of play in these games, especially back then, was like not high, um, and I was very motivated to get good quickly um and i found a few people that knew what they were doing and started talking and getting some coaching and did not take long to feel like i went from being clueless to feeling like i was probably a favorite in the lineups back then mm -hmm. um and then i went to live in vancouver with elliot and at the time um there was a account no first of all there was no reg in Baduki at the time. Uh, there was one guy who opened set that's name was Marat FB from Turkey, but he was not good. And then there was no one else. Like this is uh, a year before Sean Deeb and Raul Gonzalez sort of opened sat the lobbies and, and did well. Um, and there was an account from Azerbaijan 
who would come and just play a hundred percent of hands and draw four a bunch. Uh, it's a four card game, so that means you just raise <laughs> and then you throw your entire hand into the muck, and you're like, "Give me a new one." <laughs> yeah, um, I have a hand that's better than yours. No, wait, now I have a new hand. <laughs> yeah. And we, he would play big. So like uh, I would play mostly like 100, 200 with him, but that account would go up all the way to 400, 800 was the highest on stars at the time when it was losing. So it would, it would like chase losses. So it would come and sit at 100, 200 and then lose and then goes to 200, 400. And then if it ever got unstuck, it would quit for the day. And it came every day at the same time. And I just like became a Badoogie reg um, where I would just kind of uh, wait for this account to come play. And then I felt like I was getting better and I would, I would start to play heads up against the Marat FB guy um, or play a couple of the other, like um, Vladimir Shemilev. I forget his screen name on stars. Uh, I've gotten to know him uh, playing live at the world series over the years, but he, he was one of the other guys that was playing these games at the time. And I, I started to do well um, against the, the guys who were the, the regulars at the time. And again, I, I think I would have gotten killed if it had been a year later, uh, playing against Sean and playing against uh, the Raul Gonzalez account and, and uh, Johnny Becker's account as well eventually gets there I, whenever, you know, probably some some real uh, work was done on this game. But uh, at the time, it was great. Um, and I was able to to spin up more. And then I started traveling with Elliot to tournaments as well. He was very into tournament circuit. Um, more more crazy dgen stories and this is still all of 21 i mean this is like six months in past dropping out of college um we went to ept monaco and elliot gets us two seats in this private game um it's a 200 400 no limit game elliot i remember took 80 percent of me so i have 20 percent um and it's like so uh antonio like esfandiari 40 80 40 80 effective yeah it's Antonio Esfandiari, um, Sorel Mitzi. Uh, there's like two Russian guys who are clearly the reason the game is running. Uh, oh man, it's been so long. Uh, I think Alec Torelli is in this game. Uh, so anyway, uh, first hand is like under the gun opens to, uh, I guess it's like, 1200 or something three people call they short bought this game so like i have i think i bought in for 20k so i have 50 blinds i have nines in the small blind i just call uh the big blind is the russian guy and he's just like uh he makes it like 40k giggling <laughs> um the like giggle clearly, 40K. Doesn't, give, clearly yeah. doesn't give a fuck uh and uh or I guess it's not 40. He makes it like, uh, he makes it a little bit smaller because Antonio ends up calling. So it must be like uh, 25 or something like that. And Antonio calls from under the gun. And I, I'm just like, all right, fine. Like, I, I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to go with this hand uh, in this spot. Probably not, but like, I don't know. How no deep were Antonio like and the Russian? Or were particularly serious. Like 350,000 feet. Oh, shit. So they're very 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 deep like yeah, i'm just very like deep. fucking around in this game i have no business in this game yeah um so i just call in uh thought comes uh king jack nine three tone <laughs> not my suit or not king jack nine sorry i don't want this in it's like king jack eight three tone mm -hmm. I, I have nothing i like cannot win this pot and the russian guy uh goes all in for like three hundred i i'm just like fuck 
I, I, I guess I lose. And Antonio uh, folds, board runs out. Uh, I don't know. It runs out like another jack, and then uh, it completes the four flush with a small card. I'm like, you win. And he, he just stares at me. He's like, no. <laughs> I was like, uh, I was like, all right. I like turned over nines kind of sheepishly. He turns over ace queen without a suit to the board. Like, he just shoved the king jack eight board with like ace, all clubs with like ace queen of hearts for $300,000. Um, I'm like, nice triple up. Uh, yeah, I'm like physically shaking. Uh, it's like a $90,000 pot. I like can feel my legs just like completely out of control. I just, you know, this guy's just like giggling that he just like bluffed <laughs> on Tony off this dry side pot with literally nothing. Yeah. Oh, at least um, you're probably not going to be all in again in the very near future with that 90 K <laughs> the way the game's playing. Yeah. So this is another place where the, the casino shuts down. So the game ends pretty soon after this. We didn't get in until late. Um, and then uh, another fun story from this game is that Russian dude looks at me and he's like, are you playing the 25K tomorrow? And I, I, I can't do a Russian accent. I, I say no. And he says, now you are. And he just throws me a 25K chip. And he said, uh, he's like, you have 20%. Um, <laughs> so as the, the first 25K I played, it was just like a random free roll from a Russian dude who did not give me contact info, by the way. Like I did play it and intended to pay him, but he gave me no way to contact him. Like not his name, not his number, not like where to see him again. Like I never saw him again. Uh, he he just gave me that twenty five k for for eighty percent of my, uh, and I I ended up busting that one and not cashing. But yeah, I did play the twenty five k like that year for no reason. You would have heard from his people if you <laughs> if you would have cashed. Right. He, he he would have figured it out. Um, I have a piece of this guy. Maybe. I don't even know if he remembered by the next day. But that's, that's I, I did intend to it, try to find him if I had cashed. I kind of wish you would have cashed just to know like what would have happened. This mysterious Russian that just like chunks you at 25k chip. probably go to and... Antonio. Like, someone's, Antonio's got to know who he is. Like, so yeah. that's, that's probably the best bet of the time. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop... And you don't know what to do. One man Coach Brad Wilson. has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash Nuffle. Rated R. So, life's good. You Like, it, I guess... Did you have any of these like DGN spots that did not go well um, early in your career? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for sure. Uh, everything went so well that first six months. And then um, let me think of where things really went wrong. And then I had to hit like a hard reset. Uh, I would say the worst things that happened to me on the downswing where I started playing Chinese and I think I got pretty good, but I just could not beat um, Aussie Matt, who's of of fame from some, some live streams. I don't know if you've seen him before, but um, we used to play relatively large uh, Chinese and I was very confident. I was better than him. And I, I have never been able to beat that man. I've I've played him at three separate stages of my career, this being the first. And he has just taken any dollar I was willing to risk uh, from me at all of those stages in Chinese. Very, very frustrating. But 
the um, pineapple variety or regular or all the kinds pineapple we actually when we first started playing we're playing one at a time because it was before pineapple was popular so that's mm-hmm. dates me a little bit uh i remember, like 20, I remember those days. 2014 i guess at the start yeah i, yeah. I heard that app because uh, i mean everybody was on that app at commerce back then i i heard that they had some like security f- yes flaw yeah barry barry had his nephew hack it and it seemed hackable i still contend that the person barry chose not to pay who is thomas keller there's no way thomas was cheating him um the fact that the app was hackable is not evidence that that thomas was cheating him and so i i still contend that that was not the right settlement to that issue. But yes, Barry Barry got some relative of his to, to hack the app. So the, the app was unstable. And there were definitely some Russians um, who showed up to the World Series, I think in 2015, that did hack the app and did cheat everyone and like got caught and kind of laughed in everyone's faces and like didn't even try to collect the outstanding money after they got caught. They just went back to Russia and were like, Oh well, like thanks for the free money, idiots. Yeah. Um yeah, just but uh at the time it was yeah, super popular commerce. Um and in fact, uh for a brief spell in here, I also was doing a, a crazy thing uh where I was playing against this guy at commerce in Chinese. This one didn't go poorly, but we were playing one at a time. We played numerous 40-hour sessions, 50-hour sessions, like multiple day, like full two-day sessions of, of one of the time Chinese. And I, I think we ended up breaking even against each other in the long term. And I, I think I was a better player for the first 20 hours of all these sessions and then didn't realize how much better he was at being awake for 48 hours than I was because <laughs> it was all he'd done his entire life. And I, I had never done it before. And looking back, I had... I should have realized how big of a mistake uh, continuing to play was that I, I didn't at the time, but we, we played a lot of, I, it was like 300 a point one at the time. Uh, we played a lot of 50 hour sessions that swung a hundred K in each direction. And this is by, this is maybe a month or two after that Monaco thing. Yeah. Uh, that this was happening. And then off you match a couple months after that. Um, and I must've lost, I don't know, two thirds of my bankroll to Matt before I like called a hard stop and was like, okay, fuck, fuck, stop. Um, if I lose, if I keep doing this, I'm going to have to, you know, this is going to be over and I'm really enjoying this and I've found ways that I can win and I need to start. This is more when like, uh, the reality and the lockdown of the situation. And like, I really do want to make this work as opposed to when I originally dropped out and it was kind of like, eh, if it works, it works. And if it doesn't like fine. I'll, yeah, I'll just kind of gamble. Your your no moss moment, no moss, Aussie Matt. Just uh, I'm done. I'm done. Um, I remember like going back. Uh, so like I was putting in sixty hour weeks at the Commerce, playing in that ten twenty game, and right next door was you know a twenty forty PLO game popped up. There was like no no PLO at Commerce, and then there was twenty forty PLO, and that was like the only PLO that was spread like that I remember at that time, at least in the high stakes room. Um, and I remember like just, you know, the fish, the Rex kind of 
moving one table over to PLO, <laughs> like one at a time. And then all of a sudden, like they never came back. Like once they were there, they never came back to the, the 1020 Hold'em. Um, and then like, you know, there was a, a friend of mine who was uh, playing the 1020 Hold'em, had never played PLO in his life. And one day he just like, was like, man, fuck this. <laughs> he just like stood up, went over there and never came back. And I'm pretty sure he still plays PLO to this day. So like, there is a lot to... Um, you know, playing in games where the learning curve is not as steep as No Limit Hold'em and creating just opportunity for yourself and finding places to generate edge where there's less information. You know what I mean? Like, I think the mixed game play, um, just if you're an aspiring professional poker player, learning more games just has to be a good thing for the longevity of your career. Like, it can't possibly be bad, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, the more games you play, the better your ability to play the best game in the room is. So wherever the best game is, you would like to not be hindered by the fact that you don't know how to play the game. Yeah, the Melissa Melissa Burr methodology of like her goal, just always playing the best game in the room. And in order to do that, you got to know how to play all the games that are being spread in the room. Yeah. Um, as you were uh, recovering from getting Aussie matted, uh, what were the rules that you put in place? The the reset. What did that look like? Uh, I don't know. I, I dropped stakes significantly and started uh, tracking my results pretty religiously, um, and set some uh, big bet limits, like how many big bets I needed to my name. Big bets being, um, you know, if you play fifty hundred limit, hold them one hundred is a single big bet. Um, I was mostly playing limit poker at this time. Um, just set a bunch of uh, limits and restrictions of like uh, try to prevent myself from running out of money. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know if I remember correctly, it was like I needed uh, 400 big bets to, to play a game and um, I was going to track my results and I also instituted it this time. And this is one thing that I have remained good at um, and was good from the start when I implemented it, which was I was going to quit pretty quickly when having losing sessions. Um, I was, it was like pretty clear to me that, um, you know, getting down 40 big bets in a live game, uh, it, it was very hard to, to consistently play my A game from that point. And in fact, no one that I was really watching was consistently playing their A game from that point. Um, and I like, you know, when you're winning, it was much easier to play well. Um, and I just started playing much shorter losing sessions and much longer winning sessions. And it, it made a huge observable difference, um, to my results at the time. And why, why did this one stick, you know, this reset, um, as I'm sure there were probably many moments of wanting to reset throughout the years. Like what, why did this one, like, did you take it seriously abide by, you know, your new code? I I don't know. Um, you know, this had been at this point, I'm 22. And this had been a 12-year uh, journey yeah. of basically being a uh, unstable, mostly losing poker player for 12 years. And I knew that, like, I had the wits to be a winning poker player, but I had never had the control. And I have no idea uh, really 
why it suddenly clicked in a way that my body and emotions had rejected for 12 years. It was just like, maybe it's, you know, fear of, uh, having to acknowledge that it's, that it's not going to work. And it was just a desperation, uh, survival instincts to, to avoid that. I, I, I really don't know. Um, I've tried to pinpoint this for people because again, I've, I've tried to get other people into poker through the years, especially early on and just watched all of them not make it because of emotional control and not because of intelligence. And I don't know. And I've watched so many people who, who, who aren't my friends who, who try to make it, make it in poker that do well for a while and then just hit that, that rocky road at some point and just break. Um, I wish I had like a, a cookie cutter answer to help people. I, you know, I just kept trying and this was the time that it finally worked um, yeah. well, after many failed attempts. You'd, you'd had many battle scars. You'd had many experiences and also, you know, you're getting older too, right? Like you're maturing. Your brain is like, uh, was not done developing as an 11 year old, but like, as you hit 23 to 25, you know, your brain like is relatively mature. Um, so maybe just getting older and gaining some maturity and maybe perspective like that could have aided you as well. Sure. But there, it's, there's a lot of guys in their thirties that like, can't do it. A lot of guys in their forties that, you know, that's true. Me how... their, <laughs> their maturity level is suspect though. Sometimes. <laughs> sure. I, I am constantly surprised by people who, I guess not constantly anymore, but I was constantly surprised, especially as the era of solvers came in. Like this is mostly people who are still around are probably going to stick around, but there was an era in like 2016 to 2018 or so where a lot of long-term poker pros who refused to, especially in Hold'em, but in some other games as well, who refused to acknowledge any of the like revolution of the way the game was changing kind of got phased out of the game and realized they weren't, weren't winning players anymore. Like I was pretty shocked at how unstable um, a lot of people's reactions to that were. I mean, it's kind of cyclical, Despite right? The, the longevity they'd had in the game. Yeah. It's, it's a cyclical. No, I think it's It's cyclical that the game changes and there's this set of humans who have been successful for a while that don't, adapt to the change you know like a winning player in 2000 going you know just all the old men coffee right like all the old men that had grinded through the 90s and played ultra tight um and had success like at some point that just didn't cut it anymore and they didn't evolve and change with the times um and, and now like with you know, all the super powerful tools that we have as poker players to investigate, learn, grow our understanding of poker. Um, the folks that don't latch on to any of them, I mean, it, it's going to be a very tough road. Like you, you just make your journey so much more difficult than it needs to be. Like you can expedite the learning process through these amazing things that like weren't available 10 years ago you know that to kind of just ignore them uh, it just seems kind of foolish to me and it makes a lot of sense that like you ignore that stuff to your own peril yeah yeah i mean for sure that's a dangerous choice that a lot of those guys made and many got punished not all but well i think it's like laziness but, too you know you're just like yeah you know 
how how much different could it be? Like how, how much more could I could I learn? Some some of that stubbornness rather than laziness. It's, it's a question of uh, it's going to be different in different cases. But lazy, I mean, laziness is just a key component of of most previous era poker players. I think in terms of at least their approach to study of the game. I, I would not say in their approach to a lot of other things, but but in their approach to like how important approaching the game itself was, yeah, it was not taken very seriously for a very long time. And la- laziness you can didn't have to like, it, yeah, la- laziness can manifest into stubbornness. I think too, where it's like, yeah, I just really you give off the air that you're stubborn, but the reality is like you just don't want to do it, you know, or you're scared, or there's just some aversion to diving in deep. That makes sense. Uh, cool, man. So, yeah, like a- after you moved to Canada, when did you come back to the states? And yeah, what what is the the journey from you know then until today? What does that look like? Uh, so Canada, I was there um, from like January through June of my my the year I was twenty one. This is not a super long time. Um, probably six months at most. And I, I basically came back after after that Monaco trip. I decided I uh I don't know. I decided I would rather come back to the States. Um I stayed in LA. Um I grinded LA cash games for a while. And then I had one very big spin-up LAPC where uh, I think it was when I was either 22 or 23. I'm not sure which one. I, I just couldn't lose, and the games kept getting bigger. And I just, I, I must have won during that LAPC, you know, 55 out of 60 days, and the stakes just kept going up. And like we started by playing 100, 200, and 150, 300 limit. And I, I'm still following my bankroll rules, and it just, it just kept like as the games got bigger because other players would get there. I don't know if you've been around for LEPC, obviously like it starts small and it, it gets bigger and bigger as uh, from January through the end of February, as more people come into town leading up to that main event. Um, by the end of that LAPC, I was playing, I think 800, 1600. And I, you know, you just, you just win 30 bets a day at 150, 300. And then all of a sudden it's 200, 400 and you keep winning 30 bets a day. And now it's 300, 600. You keep winning 30 bets a day. You just, it's kind of an unreal stretch. Um, and it, it finished with 800, 1600, and it just, it didn't fall off at all. Um, and at that point I was like, I now really have uh, this second chance to, to handle this responsibly. And since then, you know, I, I, I lived in LA for a lot longer. Um, I tried at some point to move into, this is mostly mixed games. Um, I have tried it unsuccessfully twice to make it in the Bobby's room game while handling it responsibly, which means um, somewhat of a short leash. But I, I do think I'm a very good mixed game player. I think the, the eight or nine guys in that game that are consistent regular winners over the years are better than me. Um, and I, I think there's also a chance my brain melts. I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of people at specifically 1500, 3K or higher. It just feels like 
everyone kind of has a limit to where the money actually starts to, you know, I don't think of the money in most stakes that I play. It's just a game. It's just numbers. I think 1500 3k is kind of my breaking point of where I start to struggle with, uh, this is fucking too much money. And, uh, I, you know, this is a car in this pot, or this is a house in this spot. Um, and seeing that instead of just seeing numbers and, and ships. But um, so I, I've tried twice to, to make it in that game and I've had two unsuccessful small shots where I've lost, you know, a hundred to 150 bets and kind of been like, ah, shit, um, it didn't work. And, you know, maybe it's just bad luck, but uh, I, I do feel like it, it, it has affected me in a way that I, I don't feel that affected other stakes. Uh, at some point um, in like 2017 then, I uh, started playing on Live at the Bike, which is where I think most people know me from. Uh, Ryan Feldman was someone who I'd played uh, from time to time uh, at the Commerce Games with, and he invited me to come play. Uh, and I was like, yeah, sure, that sounds fun. Um, and I remember being super sketched out by live streams initially, which is funny given the whole possible situation that ended up happening. But if you go back and watch the first shows that I played on Live at the Bike, I bought in really short um, and was just super uncomfortable with the idea of, of live hole card sharing. Um, and then became more and more comfortable with it as I did well on the shows um, to the point where I started buying in deeper and, and playing the bigger shows. Um, I had a lot of success on that show. And at some point, uh like a year and a half into playing the show i started doing commentary for them as well at ryan's request and then a spot for ownership opened up and i ended up becoming a, a part owner of live at the bike and so i was doing weekly commentary and playing the games and i, I was an owner there for uh, a little over a year um which was a great time like uh, i really enjoyed uh, commentary i really enjoyed uh, interacting with that community i i loved all the guys that were playing uh weekly on those friday shows um still in good touch and, and friendly with with almost everyone um from that show and i was in a long distance relationship during this time uh with a girl who was attending yale and so i was going back and forth from the east coast to the west coast and at some point it became serious enough that it was um, time for she, she graduated, got a job in New York City and it was time to make a decision about it. I decided I, I wanted to come back here and be with her. And so I sold my piece. And um, so most of what I was doing during that time was playing mixed games at, at Commerce uh, during the week and then, and then playing that big live stream game that everyone watched on Fridays. And I moved back to Jersey and have been here since with her and still still here with her uh, and our families are both here and uh i mostly these days uh since COVID, especially all the games moved online which has been fucking great yeah, that's nice um, <laughs> given that there wasn't that much going on live here um so it, it's kind of amazing to have especially for the mixed community where the games are so spread out uh prior to this having all the mixed games move online ha ha has been awesome um and I'm pretty far from Borgata and Borgata wasn't even having consistent big games prior to the pandemic. So the last two years, you know, COVID sucks and quarantine sucks and all this stuff. But for poker, like you couldn't um, write a better script for, for how things have gone for me. So it's um, it's been much calmer these days. Like, uh, you know, I 
as I said, I, I took a couple shots of that. And like, uh, when I'm in Vegas, um, you know, there's consistent like 400, 800 that runs and, and such, but, uh, honestly, um, online, you know, the games that run consistently are like 150, 300, 200, 400, or even like 80, 160. And, and those play almost as big as live, like 400, 800 or bigger. Um, when you're playing two tables, uh, of, you know, 100 200 online it's just so many hands relative to you know going three times a week to play live 400 800 um that it's it's much lower volatile like much lower variance much lower volatility well you still just get in a ton of hands so i don't know yeah. it's been great um I, I i am back to being an online poker player uh, and i i enjoy it a lot more this time around after having gotten my fill of, of all that live and cool man that's good to hear that's uh, that's where i find myself these days find yourself quarantining battling in the mix mixed online games after they've consolidated due to covid um so what, what was the, the experience like um running live at the bike like what was your favorite favorite part of that because it's just an interesting little tangent well i really enjoyed um adjustments so you have to to watch back those shows like every hand that you're playing every read that you're giving off everything that you're doing is being recorded and watched by everyone you're playing with and so um it's kind of this interesting meta where you really need to uh be watching back these shows taking notes on yourself taking notes on others um you know some of the players like really clearly weren't and it hurt them and some of the players really clearly were and uh, like made a huge difference um garrett in particular is someone who when i first started playing the show uh didn't seem to be doing much um in terms of adjustments and he went on a, a really big downswing and seemingly was kind of losing his mind um like he, he's not usually someone who who whines or complains or has a lot of mental game problems. And, and he was really struggling with keeping it in, even on stream, you know, basically being like, woe is me, like, what is happening? Like, how do I keep losing? Um, and he clearly went through a huge shift. Like if you run his stats from shows in 2017, and then you rerun his stats and shows in 2018 and 2019, like completely changed his game. Um, you know, in like a really impressive way where it looks like he was like, shit, I'm losing. Uh, I uh, need to, you know, go study, watch back these shows and, and probably put some, and he's talked about this on podcasts, like put some time into learning uh, how poker theory works. And then I still have all my magic tricks that I learned through live, but like, I need to actually understand the fundamentals too. I mean, he started playing 20% less hands pre-flop. Like that's, that's the biggest thing that changed. But I mean, some of the, the like blast offs on the river and, and some of the three bet hand selections and stuff just all changed. He just became such a better player, but I don't know. I really enjoyed watching people fight to evolve through. Um, I, again, like as we talked about at the very beginning, I love competitive games. Um, I'm not someone who has always been in poker to like, just chase the dead money and, um, you know, uh, pretend to be, not someone who I am so that I can get myself into better spots to just basically rob people blind. Like I've always embraced playing tough people heads up. I've always embraced playing tough lineups. Like I really enjoy the aspect of 
it's okay to acknowledge that we're all trying to win here um, and that we are putting in effort and we're going to see how that plays out. And, you know, may the best man win. Like, good luck. Like, I know you're trying. I'm trying my ass off too. And we'll, we'll see which one of us gets there. Like, yeah. I, I really like that. Um, and that's what I do in my free time too. Like when I'm not playing poker, it's a lot of that in games where the norm is is that instead of it being somehow like, uh, this weird thing because in poker no one wants to do that because it you know it hurts their bottom line they're hourly and everyone pretends to be worse than they are and tells lies about how much they work on their game or whatever yeah that's a weird um, thing like I, i've never felt compelled to do that like I, i've never felt compelled to say like when somebody asked me what i do at a poker table to just like i play poker for a living like i i, I don't understand I, i've never felt the need to like misrepresent myself and why we're there we're there to play a game right to the best of our ability so like yeah i mean just being honest about it has just i don't know it just has always felt like the right thing to do for me personally the issue became uh the private games and, and locking people out um who basically were honest about how hard they were trying and a lot of the people who have succeeded in those are still trying their hardest they're just saying that they're not and are better at, at pretending like they're not yeah. Um, and I don't know that whole thing when that developed, I, I just kind of got sad. Like, I was just like, I, I, I mean, I'm not interested in, in any part of this. Um, and I'm not going to be someone who I'm not like so many guys just look like actors to me now. And like the things that come out of their mouth are like the polar opposite of what they stated aloud, you know, two years prior, um, with respect to poker. And I don't think they've changed in their approach. They've just, you know, they're just playing characters now. And yeah. I don't know, it's just not, not the appealing part of this to me. And it's never been um, about maximizing hourly or EV at the cost of, of, of these things. Like, I don't know, I, I really enjoy um, fighting and trying and it's cool that the currency is in money and that like, you know, some people are in the ecosystem that just, you know, can't win and it, it helps you support yourself. But I, I'm never backing down from, from these challenges, you know, at the, yeah. at the very highest of stakes, you know, like I said, taking the shots at Bobby's room, I have to be a little bit more responsible with, with, with battling, but I, I'm very happy to battle at any stakes that are responsible for me with, with people who I think are at my level or, or better at times. And then what that also entails means trying to get better than them. It's not just playing them to lose. It's I'm going to go work and then I'm going to come back and try again. Yeah. I know I barely missed the private game thing. Like, I, I mean, tell me if this sounds familiar, but I was living at commerce, putting in my 60 hours, um, and went back home, met a girl, um, ended up moving in with who is person who is now my wife and haven't been to commerce in like five years or six years, fuck seven years now, I think. (laughs) Uh, so I wasn't there when things like privatized, um, you know, in the live game scene, I never went through that because I just like went back to playing online poker in Atlanta, Georgia. There's like no real viable live casinos there. Um, but it, it's funny, you know, I, I've told this story on the show before about Garrett, but like, like when Garrett would sit at a table at Commerce 1020, like it would be like musical chairs, like everybody's standing up, like everybody's moving so that like he doesn't sit on their left. At, like, and I remember one session in particular when he sat on my left and I think we were playing 2040 and like I doubled up twice through him and then like for four straight hours, he three bet me every time I opened. Like it was like, <laughs> it was like anytime I put money in the pot, didn't matter. He three bet me every time. Uh, and I remember 
um, going to the the basketball courts behind commerce and shooting around with some regs. And like, uh, I was kind of laughing and, and told him, you know, what Garrett did. Uh, and one of the guys was just like, wow. He's like, they just, he just made the game like unprofitable for you and for himself and like just profitable for everybody else. Like the dude on Garrett's left was just like loving every second of that, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, like Garrett never been afraid to just put the money in and battle like, and, and yeah, he, he could, he could get a little, uh, steamed up, um, playing in some of the smaller games compared to, I guess the much bigger games that he plays now. And from what you're saying, it sounds like he spent a lot of time in the lab and worked hard to, yeah, sort of even, even himself out, um, in spots like that. Yeah. I mean, the story with the girl sounds very familiar. Um, Garrett, the Garrett story also sounds familiar. I mean, to back up my case of not backing down, the first time I ever played with Garrett, uh, we also played in a 10 20 no limit game, which was followed by him challenging me to heads up after I won a pot and us going and playing heads up for uh, 50 hundred from the 10 20 game. So yeah. that was the first time I ever met Garrett, was we played uh, an hour of 10 20 and then we played two hours of heads up 50 hundred. Um, Garrett. Uh, old Garrett, man, I miss old Garrett. Yeah, uh, one of the cool things that Garrett used to do in the 10-20 game at Commerce was all those regs would sit with case money or money that they really couldn't afford to lose to show off, but it was like too much money to actually get in with anything other than the nuts in their opinion. So that 10-20 game, there used to be a bunch of regs who would sit 10 to 12K deep, but like could not afford to lose, could not afford to lose 10K in a hand. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember... Um, there's an amazing hand against one of these guys where I believe Garrett four bets and the guy five bets what is like clearly aces. Um, so the five bets probably to like, I don't know, 1500 at 1020 or something like that. Garrett peels. Flop is like queen nine four two tone. Uh, the guy down bets queen nine four and Garrett just shoves. So it's like a, you know, it's 3K pot. The guy bets like 1K into 3K maybe. And Garrett just shoves like 12K. And the guy tanks forever. Looks fucking miserable. Uh, and finally folds Ace's face up. And it's like, I don't understand how you always do it to me, Garrett. And Garrett turns over 10-2 offsuit. <laughs> like just, just nothing. Literally, yeah. literally nothing. Just yeah. like with a huge crit on his face. <laughs> and it's, he just, he did really well in those games for a long time because people refused to sit with responsible amounts of money for themselves. And he just ran everyone over for years with hands like this, where just like he was willing to put in money that no one was willing to put in without the nuts. And mm -hmm. you redline the shit out of people doing that. Yeah. Um, and he and when, he, when he made his adjustment, I think what happened is he, he finally ran into people who were willing to put the money in with him. And he was like, Oh fuck, I need to actually learn how to, how to play poker now because I mean, what he was doing was, was poker. Like it was amazing. Um, it just, it didn't work anymore because if people were finally, this is like the beginning of solvers telling everyone that like, you know, how fucking crazy light you have to call off a uh, hundred blinds in a bunch of different spots and people learning that you, you know, really can't fold top pair <laughs> in a lot of situations instead yeah. of folding over pairs and sets and, and two pairs and shit that people were folding to him back in the day. Because yep. he just said all in and they were like, I can't afford to lose this money. Pot, pot odds um, and equity are, are, are really things in poker. They kind of matter. <laughs> They're kind of important in the decision-making process. Um, 
Yeah. Right. Uh, and that, also not 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 buying in with money you can't lose. That's is, true. Like, is a key skill that a lot of a lot of those 1020 commerce regs did not did not get. And money that you're just not like not willing to get in, you know, just like you're just not willing to get the money in it. It's just like collecting dust. And I mean, like he would buy in for like 35k like every time, like just have the table covered um infinitely and at yeah. first that first day we played, he had, he bought in for 100k. By the way, the next Did biggest he? stack at the table was like 12k. <laughs> yeah, he had the guy bring him. He had the guy bring him 90k in pinks, and then day in white. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, I'll gear it. Um, yeah. Oh, cool, man. Yeah, this has been. Yeah, it's been great. We we've spent our hour and a half just. Uh, yeah, your story, diving into your story through poker. It's it's been an amazing journey thus far. Um, we'll have, uh, let's, let's do like two lightning round questions and then, yeah, then we can, we can call it. If you could wave a magic wand, change one thing about poker, what would you change? (laughs) What we were just talking about, which is, um, I would like to remove from, from, especially the cash game scene, just this, uh, so much effort put into pretending to be someone you're not, pretending to not care when you do. Uh, just the amount of dishonesty um, and facades with respect to uh, effort being put into the game or how much you care. I don't know. It, it's just the whole thing is so stupid and uncomfortable to me. Um, and a, a system that I don't enjoy participating you, in. Do anymore. you have any ideas? No, because I understand why it's developed this way. Um, I just hate it. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, my idea would be for people who, no, I don't, I really don't have an idea. I, I understand exactly why it, why it's working this way and why it's developed this way. And I, I just hate it. Like it just isn't for me in a way that like poker has been my life and I love poker and I love like this aspect of poker and this developing is just so sad for me. It's just a capitalist end game state of the game and I, I don't dislike capitalism it's just it's just a sad um it's a sad thing to happen to to the game and system that i that i've spent so much of my time in love that that i just it's so at ends with who i am as a person yeah i'm i guess i'm happy that i haven't had to experience it or go through any of that but yeah i mean I guess good luck. You know, I have a podcast and everything, so <laughs> it's going to be quite hard, quite hard for me to like claim anything other than what I am. But I just, it's not in me to, it, it's just not in me as a human being to claim it anyway. Like I just, I just don't think that I can do it. Like it would, I would rather just not play poker or play much smaller. I guess personally. Yeah. Um, if you could put up a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What's your billboard say? <laughs> um am i trying to help them or am i trying to help myself like am i trying to get them angry as they come in to play with me either one e- either one you know brian brian rass gave two i think one of them was like your mom doesn't love you right that was the then, first then they're gonna so. <laughs> then they're gonna play worse when they show they're up gonna twist the knife um, yeah yeah man billboard saying that's a tough question uh I don't know. Yeah, keep things in perspective. I, I'm not good with little, like little slogans. Um, relax. Uh, I'm trying to think of what the what the biggest, what the fastest helped of some of the problems that people 
face in poker is. I, I don't know that a slogan is going to fix any of it. Your mom doesn't love you is, is, is excellent though. Um, <laughs> this is the, this is yeah. not my uh, forte. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride is good. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, you working on, you working on any projects that are near and dear to your heart? Um, near and dear to my heart. No, I, I mean, I just do poker study, um, is one of my main projects. And then I've, I've gotten into coding recently. Um, some of it with respect to poker, but a lot of it, uh, with respect to other kind of like, uh, you know, spreadsheet math kind of stuff that I really like, you know, we tried to do some daily fantasy sports stuff and it didn't work out very well, but it was really cool to, to learn about programming and, um, spreadsheet manipulation. I, I couldn't sound like more of a nerd, but it really, really was an enjoyable process. Like I just love working with, uh, with data in a way that is it's somewhat embarrassing. Um, and that's been something that I got into during quarantine and have really, really enjoyed. Yeah. You're in the right place for nerding out and people that enjoy working with data. I think like right before we started this call, I had like 20 spreadsheets open, just like looking at them, copying and pasting and like trying to make sense of data and organize it, um, which is like been a regular part of my day for the past like year or so. Um, and as it relates to poker, I would say like for the CPG listener, uh, I think in this last year, I've experienced more growth as a poker player than I have at any point in my career, other than when I first started playing poker, like just looking through this stuff is just, yeah, it's fun. Um, I didn't realize I love spreadsheets so much, but at the end of this, I, I, I don't know whether or not I'll want to see another spreadsheet again for the rest of my life. Funny. Um, no, Excel's my best but, friend. Uh, like, I, just, I just love love Excel and, and spreadsheets and, and, and kind of, a, again, like an embarrassing uh, way of how, how much it really brings joy to me. Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll close on our shared love of spreadsheets and data. And uh, if the CPG listener wants to learn more about you on the World Wide Web, where can they go? Uh there's not much i I have a twitter uh at dan i think double underscore zach but i mostly just post pictures of of gummy bears and uh (laughs) range it nfl coaching decisions so yeah as somebody that did research before this conversation started i can attest you you don't have much of an internet presence (laughs) no yeah live at the bike was was what my outward reaching thing was since since then i really haven't done much in terms of uh communicating in my life in any way with the public yeah probably for the best it's, it's not a bit not a bad move um it's been great having you on great getting to know you and and learning more about your poker journey thank you very much and um yeah in the yeah. next year or so maybe we can do a round two have you back on sure it was a pleasure thanks Brad. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter 
at CPG Podcast.